0: And welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. It was a demonstration the likes of which Israel has never seen. More than a hundred thousand men, women, and children, families, groups from across the country streamed into Jerusalem throughout the day on Monday. They left their jobs, their schools, to raise their voices against the judicial revolution being pushed by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his government. Haaretz correspondent Judy Maltz was there to experience it, and she's joining me today to talk about the experience and what she thinks it meant. Hi, Judy. Hi, Alison. Judy, set the scene for us. You've been to the weekly Saturday night demonstrations against the judicial reforms that would radically change Israel's balance of power between the judiciary and the legislative. But Monday was different. It was time to take place in the middle of the day, just as the Knesset Constitution Law and Justice Committee was set to approve the changes and send them for the first reading to the full Knesset. It was a real-time protest. So Tell us what it was like to be traveling with protesters from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and what you found when you got there. Okay, so first,
1: this was different than any Saturday night protest that we've seen. I think it was different than any protest we maybe ever had in Israel. And the main reason is the timing. It was on a Monday in the middle of the day. So it, it it was a protest, but at the same time, it was a strike. People took off of work. Kids did not go to school. Whole families took a day off. Many of them are not getting reimbursed for this. Their, their employers are not going to pay them, as you said. Um, so I decided to take the train there. I figured that would be quicker than uh, driving because we knew there were going to be these convoys of cars deliberately slowing down traffic on the main Tel Aviv-Jerusalem highway. Which is bad enough on a normal day. Exactly. And I figured, oh, it starts at about noon. I'll head out nine in the morning. The train ride is only about 45 minutes. That's more than enough time. Well, the first train came, and I looked at it. I walked in. I could not breathe. I happened to be claustrophobic. After five seconds, I said, I'm getting out of here. Okay. 15 minutes later, another train. Exact same situation. I waited for four trains until there was one where I felt I could actually breathe, and I would not <laughs> faint on that train. And you had to see the scene when we got out of the, of the train in uh, the Jerusalem train station. Now, you know, the Jerusalem train station is really, really deep in the bowels of the earth. You have to take these three huge escalators to get up and out, and actually three and a half and it was mobbed, streams and streams of people, all of them with flags and chanting, democracy and singing. And of course, it was all one way going up. You hardly saw anyone coming down. And it was a scene. I've, I've never seen anything like this before. And then once they got out of the station, walking from there, I guess it's about half a mile walk until the Supreme Court, which is where a lot of people started walking toward the Knesset. It was incredible because like it was in the middle of the day. How many protests do you have in the middle of the day? On a weekday, whole families, you know, on these grassy patches, you saw families, you know, pull out sandwiches, have picnics. What what were you supposed to do? You couldn't hear the speeches even if you wanted to. So people just walked back and forth
0: and it it, kind of felt like
1: a festival in a way.
0: So not like the angry Balfour protests or even like the Saturday night protests where there's sort of just an undercurrent of anger or pushback and this was relatively, I guess, peaceful, did it feel like? Or, or what did it feel like? Well, well, there was anger. For
1: sure there was anger. But I think it was more because whole families came. It was daylight. People were sitting. It was... You could have mistaken it for some big festival in the middle of, a, of the day. Um, but I think, to me, perhaps the weirdest thing about it was the aftermath. At some point, there was nothing to do anymore. People had to go somewhere, right? Middle of the day, everyone had taken off. You, kids weren't going to go back to school. People weren't going to go back to work. It was lunchtime, a little later. So everyone was looking for a place to eat lunch. And where did they go? The shuk. The shuk. Now, what is the shuk known for? It is, you know, this is the Likud pro Netanyahu
0: stronghold, right? This
1: is the stronghold. This is where every member of Likud goes to start their campaign. And suddenly, it's being swarmed. I mean, <laughs> we had to go probably to four or five restaurants where we found at least one that it was less than an hour wait for a table. So all these so-called leftists carrying their Israeli flags in the middle of Machane Yehuda, standing in line, waiting to eat lunch, it was surrealistic in a way, because you know, the previous, the Balfour um, protests, they were all on Saturday night. The shuk was closed. So suddenly you had this kind of confrontation between the people in the marketplace who are, you know, Bibi's biggest supporters, the big supporters of Likud. And they couldn't really figure out, like, these are leftists, right? But they're carrying flags, Israeli flags, right? So they can't be that bad. They can't really be anarchists. And they were all over the marketplace. And I, d- I didn't see any ugly confrontations because you could have had un- ugly confrontations between the people in the market and the protesters, but there weren't. They they were welcomed. I mean, they were coming. They were going into restaurants. They were buying things. They were providing a lot of business in Jerusalem that day. So I think that that was one of the stranger Elements of this, and also another reason people just hung out in Jerusalem, is because they knew what it was like getting into Jerusalem, so they didn't want to leave with everyone else. So that everyone was saying, "Let's wait a little. We don't. We'll get on a less crowded train, a less crowded bus." And so, you know, so you had
0: this extraordinary scene in the Shuk Machane Yehuda. And when you spoke to people in the crowd, when you overheard conversations in the crowd, you said, "You know, it, it wasn't an angry." feeling, but what was it? And and did you hear parents try to describe to their children why they were there? I mean this is feels like quite obscure legal terminology to to get people out. I mean people chanting democracy, democracy, but did they really understand what an override clause is? Do they really understand what taking the power away from the judiciary and putting it in the hands of the government means? What was the mood of the crowd when you spoke to people? What were they expressing to you?
1: So I think most people, if you ask them, will not know the minutiae of what this judiciary overhaul, what it entails. But people have a basic sense that this is bad for democracy, that this puts way too much power into the hands of the government. Assuming most people in the crowd did not vote for Likud or any other parties that make up this government. So there is a sense that this is not going to be good for us, that we may not have the freedoms that we have enjoyed until now. Freedom of speech, um, even freedom to protest anymore. There were a lot of interesting signs out there. I I love the handmade ones best.
0: A bunch of women dressed up like the women in the Handmaid's Tale with the red cloaks and the white bonnets, etc. Right, right. And um, there was this a uh, 18-year-old girl, she was
1: a high school senior who came from a kibbutz up in northern Israel with her father, and uh, she told me it had taken them three hours to drive. And she was holding a sign that said, in this civics class, nobody falls asleep. I think a lot of parents felt that their kids would, it would be much more of an educational experience for their children to be there on this day than it would to be sitting in in a class and falling asleep. So I think that's why uh, many parents did bring their kids. Uh, If I had kids' school age. There's no doubt I would have wanted them to see and experience something like that because it was a day, I think, that will go down in history and people will remember I was
0: there on that day. And I have to ask, was the train as crowded going home as it was getting there? No. <laughs> uh, but we took the train back. It was after seven
1: o'clock already, and also you have to remember Jerusalem's the first stop. So you know, if you can get in early enough, you can make sure to get a seat on the train. But but I understood that a few hours earlier it was also impossible getting out of Jerusalem. So yeah, it was a really unusual day, unusual event. Yeah, I'm still processing it.
0: Thanks, Judy, for sharing your experience with us. Thanks, Allison. It's great to be on.
1: Haaretz Weekly is supported by the journal Sapir, a favorite of business leaders, policymakers, and philanthropists. From Editor-in-Chief Brett Stevens, Sapir's quarterly magazine offers thought-provoking, heterodox, and practical ideas on how to create a thriving Jewish future featuring essays by today's leading Jewish voices, including Anshel Pfeffer, Howard Jacobson, Dara Horn, and Anat Wilf. Visit SapirJournal.org to read the new issue on culture and thought-provoking past issues on Zionism, education, cancellation, social justice, and more. Explore urgent ideas and perhaps gain a new perspective on Jewish issues and the Jewish community. Visit SapirJournal.org, that's S-A-P-I-R-Journal.org.
0: To put the demonstrations in context, to talk about the judicial reforms that are being opposed so strongly, and to make the connection between Netanyahu's efforts to move power from the courts to the Prime Minister's office and the Knesset and his criminal trial is Yael Friedsen, Haaretz Legal Affairs and Jerusalem Affairs Correspondent. Welcome, Yael. Hi. Yael, you live in Jerusalem and you cover Jerusalem. Judy just told us about what it was like to be a protester going from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem for the day you spent the day not protesting, but at Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's corruption trial, which you faithfully cover day in and day out, strike, no strike, demonstration, no demonstration. Could you feel what was happening there, the the sense of what was going on in the outside world, uh, in the uh, committee in the Knesset, on the streets of Jerusalem, or does the trial take place in its own special little bubble?
2: Room uh, 315, where three times a week uh, goes on Netanyahu's trial, just was like a regular day yesterday. It was even kind of weird. And we even had a debate if, um, you know, if I should go and cover uh, what's going on outside. But... Um, After a discussion, we decided that we should continue on as regular. After all, this uh, judicial reform um, has to do with this trial and wants to draw the attention from what's going on there and Netanyahu's um, legal situation. So we continued um, as usual. And also the judges, there weren't any, no one referred to it in any kind of way. Um, Of course, we didn't hear anything going on. So it was kind of strange.
0: Are the demonstrations, are the warnings about this judicial reform and how much damage it could do to the country, standing in the West economically, is any of this making a difference as far as you can see? Is there any room, especially after Monday, after this huge demonstration of signs of a softening for a willingness to have dialogue or compromise over the reform? Or are we in a total deadlock and it's full steam ahead for one side and no compromise for the other side?
2: Um, first of all, I think they do a lot of effect, OK, because um, there's this kind of notion that or claim from the right wing that they were the elections and you lost. So what do you want? And I mean, I don't think it stops over there. It's just not a matter of once in four years. OK, we all vote and then we need to be silent. Um, and you can see that, first of all, there were a few changes that were put into the law that was Passed yesterday, the law committee. Um, that I am sure that the pressure had to do with that. Uh, second of all, um, there is President Herzog's suggestion for compromises that yesterday, after this dramatic day in Jerusalem, um, first time uh, that. Yariv Levine, the Minister of Justice, and Simcha Rotman, head of the Law Committee, responded to that they accepted it, though they um, refused to suspend any legalization processes at the Law Committee. Um, so that's the first effect. The problem is, again, is Netanyahu's situation that he can't uh, interfere in this whole legal reform.
0: Yeah, I've been hearing that, that he is barred from actually helping to hammer out a compromise because he's not allowed to have anything to do with the judicial reforms? Where, where does that come from?
2: Last week, uh, Gali Barab the attorney general of Israel,
0: informed the prime minister that since he himself is
2: on trial, he can't be involved in any changes or in the legal reform. And so we're in the situation that instead of the prime minister running this whole crisis, um, negotiating, he can't
0: be involved at all. And he's sort of ignoring that though, right? He sat with the justice minister the other night. There were reports that he's doing it. And there's no way that he can't be involved in it because anything that's worked out has to be worked out with his okay so I guess it's going to be sort of like sneaky under the surface right?
2: Sneaky and also there's also different political um, forces that he has to um, consider them I mean there's different parties this is their agenda Mm -hmm. it's not only up to him Um, he's in this tight corner where he has his own personal legal issues on one hand there are forces who want to do judicial reform and in this whole position. He needs to stay out of business.
0: So there's so many questions I'm asked all the time, especially overseas, about the connection between Prime Minister Netanyahu's trial and these judicial reforms. Is there a connection? Is he pursuing them because he thinks it's going to help him get out of his legal problems? Like what are the direct and indirect connections between the way that Netanyahu and his allies are trying to change the judiciary and his personal legal issues. So let's start with the
2: easier (laughs) point of view. Um, First of all, Netanyahu had established this coalition because there's a major part of the Knesset that won't sit in his government, won't cooperate with a prime minister who is on trial. So in a way, his trial led us to, first of all, to this political situation, okay? And he established uh, Right wing um, with ultra orthodox um, right parties that have different interests in weakening um, the judicial uh, system.
0: Most importantly for the ultra orthodox, because it's the courts that stand between them and a law saying that you can study in yeshiva instead of going to the army, right? Yeah, but it has
2: to do with lots of other uh, religion state issues that they, <laughs> they didn't like different um, statements of the court in the past. And on the other hand, you have Netanyahu who is put on trial, his trial is going on for three years already, (laughs) time flies, Mm -hmm. and it's a bit conspirative in a way, but (laughs) I wouldn't say that um, it doesn't make sense at all that he wants to influence his trial, and he will have the opportunity doing it in a few ways. First of all, if he would fire the attorney general, okay, which has the authority of deciding to quit or to um, pull back the indictment against him. Or, on the other hand, um, electing the judges who would might sit at court um, when his trial would um, get to those stages. You
0: think that his trial is going to last long enough that he could appoint judges now who might be sitting then because the it'll last so long that the current judges will retire?
2: Um, first of all, one of the aspects of this legal reform is um, changing the way you elect the president of the Supreme Court. As it is today, um, the president of the Supreme Court is elected based on seniority. And by changing the way he's elected, Netanyahu can influence who will be
0: the next president of the Supreme Court. And there's talk, right, that he could um, cancel one of the charges that he's uh, faced with, like uh, push legislation through the Knesset that can't be negated by the courts that would say that, uh, one of his main charges is no longer illegal and therefore he will no longer be on trial for it, right?
2: Yeah. Um, the breach, breach of trust. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So there's different ways that they could influence his personal case that is now taking um, going on in court.
0: I mean, normally you would say, listen, the, the trial is going on right now. He can't influence it. How could he possibly influence it? You know, all of these changes would be so far down the road. But you wrote an article pointing out, as you just said, it, three years since uh, he's been indicted. This seems to be going on forever. And uh, you noted humorously in those three years, we've been through three elections and a pandemic. I guess that's like, you know, four weddings and a funeral. We've seen Netanyahu lose power and then regain it. And during that time, only 37 of 341 witnesses have testified that are on the prosecution's uh, witness list. Why is this moving so slowly? Is this normal for the Israeli courts?
2: Well, it's sad to say that Netanyahu's trial isn't that different um, than other uh, cases held on at court. The Israeli law system is very different than the American law system. First of all, I think that the trials in America can go faster because they have a jury. Okay, over here, it's we have three judges that, and every witness could be questioned for hours and hours and hours.
0: Um, the- and if they go on vacation, they postpone the trial for another month or another two weeks or however long they're gone? Yeah, so that's like one of the latest developments that um,
2: uh, a few weeks ago the judges announced that they're going to take a sabbatical of a month, which um, they it's one of their rights by law, but um, in such a dramatic case that is going on forever and is literally tearing um, the Israeli nation apart. Everyone expected them um, to keep up for a while. I don't know if they just gave up that they even they don't think (laughs) that the end is near. So they were thinking to themselves, well, we just need a break. Um, But it definitely shows that we're not getting closer to the end of this
0: trial. Before the last election, it seemed like there was a lot of talk, debate over whether a man on trial for bribery for corruption could be a functioning prime minister and still be on trial. That discussion kind of ended when he was fairly elected democratically, but it seems like this whole revival of the discussion of judicial reforms has, has, has brought it back that people are once again questioning whether Netanyahu can do it all. Can he really run the country the way it should be run and be on trial? As someone who's sitting in the trial, what's your opinion on that?
2: One of the things people don't realize is that Netanyahu doesn't come to court at all. Okay, uh, and that's um, irregular. Uh, I covered also um, former Prime Minister Ehud Olmert's trial, and he was there every hearing. He was very involved. Um, he following,
0: stepped down and resigned so that he could pay attention to his trial. Yeah, yeah. but
2: but he was also very involved. He was um, give, writing notes to his uh, attorneys during the um, during the hearing itself, and Netanyahu, in a way, is kind of making himself distinctive he doesn't want hardly to be appearing at court he doesn't he doesn't he tries to avoid it as much as possible. Um, so technically, people were really concerned, how is he going to you know, go to court and then from there to the Knesset or to um, other uh, tasks he has a, as a prime minister? And that was solved in a way. But of course, now that he can promote or suspend this um, le- legal reform and over here, it's his conflict of interest.
0: Let me ask you a few questions, Yael, about your other beat. You are the legal correspondent for Haaretz, Legal Affairs, and Jerusalem Affairs, um, which is quite a combination these days. Um, everyone's pointing to East Jerusalem this spring as a potential tinderbox. I mean, already we've had terrible, deadly terror attacks. Um, and uh, Jerusalem is being viewed as just a key, I guess, um, hole in the fence in terms of that we've got a lot of Palestinians there who identify fully as Palestinians, but they're carrying a Israeli identity card. So if they're determined to commit a terror act, it's very, very hard to uh, to prevent. And all of this is happening with uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir, um, a man with very extreme right wing controversial views as minister of national security. What do you see happening on the ground in Jerusalem and do you see a danger of a repeat performance of what we saw in May 2021, which was Jerusalem sort of as a spark that uh, that lit a major conflict in this area? First of all,
2: what um, concerns me the most is um, the age of some of these Palestinians carrying these terror attacks just yesterday. There were two separate um, terror attacks of uh, one 14-year-old Palestinian who came to two uh, policemen near one of the gates of the Temple Mount and tried to stab him with a knife. Later that day at a checkpoint at Shorafat refugee camp, there were two soldiers who went on a bus and while they were checking the passengers they saw a group of youngsters at the end of the bus i think it's a picture everyone can imagine and then one of those youngsters a 13 year old palestinian came try to stab the soldier and his companion tried to shoot back and then he shot his friend um, that uh, unfortunately died later on at the Hadassah hospital and also two weeks ago, um, there was also a terror attack um, at Seed One, a neighborhood in Jerusalem, again held by a 13-year-old teenager. In Jerusalem, uh, we've seen every once in a while there's waves of terror attacks, but seeing these very young um, Palestinians taking um, action um, is very sad and frightening in a way. And I do think that um, Itamar Ben-Gvir's um, policy and uh, public appearance has to do with it. Uh, first of all, I'll remind you that about a month ago, Itamar Ben-Gvir went up to Temple Mount, always an action of someone from the Israeli government going up there, um, steers up, causes a lot of tension. And it's these kinds of actions that you don't see the direct influence right away, but it does steer up the atmosphere, I think, in Jerusalem. The other action that Itamar Ben-Gvir is doing is um, about demolishing um, housing in Jerusalem. Now, practically, we need to understand that there isn't a huge... Change in the numbers of the demolition. Um, what is changing is announcing it in the media and bringing more soldiers and policemen to do it. And I have to say that my sources, both at the Jerusalem municipality and in the Jerusalem police aren't are feeling very uncomfortable let's put it this way because they're working all year round to try to keep things stable Um, also in different civil projects and um, here comes a ministry that is just just with
0: his words and announcement um, firing up the city he also clashed with the Jerusalem district police chief for losing control over the anarchists uh, during an anti-government protest in front of uh, Netanyahu's house. I mean, how do you think this clash between the minister who's been given so much authority over national security and the top police officials is going to end? Is somebody going to be fired? What's going to happen?
2: Again, I think there's a huge gap here between the policemen who need to who are patrolling the streets and need to keep things in order and And they know that if you would be more strict with the demonstrators, it won't relax things. It won't put things in order. It will do the exact opposite effect. Um, And they need to clean up (laughs) Mm -hmm. after Benkvir in uh, some sort of way. Again, we saw that the head of the police, Kobe Shaptai, rejected Ben-Gvir's critic. He refused to send one of his um, commanders over to reprimand Ben-Gvir's demand. So I don't know how are things going to develop, but I think that at some point um, Ben-Gvir will actually need to understand um, the gap between being in the opposition and criticizing the police and then needing to take responsibility of what's going on in Jerusalem. You think he'll get there? I'm optimistic. I think that many times when people come to power, at some point, they understand the limits. They understand that they need to compromise.
0: Well, optimism is a good quality if in your line of work, Yael. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in Jerusalem. Yael Friedson, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. that wraps things up for this edition of Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my guests, Judy Maltz and Yael Friedson, and to my producer, Amir Factor, and editor, Nahara Malkin. I'm Alison Kaplan-Sommer, and until next time, Shalom from Tel Aviv.